This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Well, happy Resurrection Sunday, everyone who's here, everyone who is uh, online, and uh, yeah. You know, I heard somebody just say it, and it's a good reminder that we actually celebrate the exact same thing every Sunday, every Sunday, right? Um, Easter happens on our calendar once a year, but the resurrection is the whole purpose for why we are here and what we talk about and what we study and what we sing about and why we exist collectively um, as, as Christians. And so that's the thing that we're, going to, uh, that we're going to talk about today. I mean, the Apostle Paul says that if the resurrection did not happen, then everything we do is useless, it's foolish, it's just a colossal waste of time. And we actually could save a lot of time by uh, not doing this today and just have a nice Sunday gathering with your family and, and you know, whatever it is you're going to do, grill out or roast some chicken or something, whatever it is you're going to have. But, uh, but that's, that's not the case. And I hope that you'll see that today. I hope that as we look at the story and this account, this historical fact, this historical event um, that took place, that, that you'll see it today fresh in a way that really, truly changes your life. And what we're going to do today is the same thing we did last week where we, we looked at the, uh, the events that gave us Palm Sunday. We jumped ahead in the Gospel of Luke, so we're going to do that again this week. We're going to jump ahead in the Gospel of Luke, and we're actually going to go all the way to chapter 23, and we're going to look at the end of chapter 23. So we're going to start with verse 50, and we're going to read all the way into chapter 24, verse 12. And that's going to give us all of the events uh, that we're going to basically unpack and, and look at here today. So let's just begin with uh, chapter 23, verse 50. I'm just going to read the whole thing. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked, for the body of Jesus. So this is after Jesus had been crucified and they were getting ready to try to find a place to put him. Jesus didn't have a, a grave of his own. So this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, said, I'd like to have the body of Jesus for, my, for the grave that I have. Well, then he took it down and he wrapped it in linen, in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And it was the day of preparation. And the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. And so they, they go back, they see, they, they go with Joseph of Arimathea, they see him lay the body in the tomb and they, how he wrapped him in linen. And then they decide to go ahead and go back and, and prepare the, the spices for the burial. They take ointment and spices out. Uh, the next day, uh, the, you know, in, a in a couple of days, and they would they would basically put that over the body, and then and then uh, that would be uh, 
sort of the ritual that they would do. But they rested on the, stat, on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now, verse 1 of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, so that's, that's Sunday. That's, that's now the day after the Sabbath day. So the day we now celebrate is Sunday because of what you're about to read. At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Well, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by beside them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day he would rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the Mary, uh, the Mary and mother of James, or Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So this is a whole group of women who go out to do this, and they're the first ones to see that Jesus is not there, and they're the first ones to proclaim that he's not there. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So what I'd like to do is, in, in a number of different ways, I'd like to explain this whole thing to you, all right? And it's not, and I don't want to uh, insult your intelligence because you've probably heard many Easter sermons before and you've heard this story before. But I, I think it's, it's this, because this is so central to our faith, I think it's valuable for us to hear it again and again and again and to know why we hold this so dear, why this is the central focus of who we are. And so I just want to talk, I just want to kind of take six points of what happened here from beginning to end, all right? And I'll just cover the whole thing from his death, burial, you know, his, his death, burial, resurrection, and everything, how it all takes place. So leading up to what we just read and also including what we just read. So it begins a hundreds of years in advance. It actually begins not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, when we hear these prophets speaking about the coming of one who would come, the, the Messiah, the Christ. All of these Old Testament prophecies were foreshadowing and predicting that Jesus would live, that he would die, that he would rise, conquering our enemies of sin and Satan and death. And he would be our Lord and Savior and our God. He is our Christ. He is our Messiah. So that is, I need to begin there because that is where this story begins. It begins in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament that happens is pointing to and foreshadowing this event, this thing that happens where Jesus comes and he is born. And all there are lots of prophecies specifically about that we talked about a few months ago at Christmas. And that, and that he would live and he would have a ministry and that he would die this kind of cruel death and he would be buried and he would rise again. All of this was talked about in the Old Testament. And you see this at the end of Isaiah chapter 52 through Isaiah 53 
that he would come from humble circumstances, that he would be born and live a simple life, that he would be put to death, not for his sin, but for other sin. That's what Isaiah talks about in those two chapters. They're incredible chapters. That he would be, he, that he would, uh, uh, be numbered with the transgressors, he says, and that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Well, who is that? That's Joseph of Arimathea. Isaiah's talking about this some 700 years before it happens. And after the suffering of his soul and being dead for those three days, he would again see the light of life and all all that God required would be satisfied. And just like the sun rose this morning and shines on us today, it's to help us to remember that Jesus is not laying in a cold, dark, empty tomb. He rose. He, he did see the light of life. That's what he did. He, everything was satisfied. He was and is satisfied in that event. And in the heavens and the new life, the, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal life, we are told that his glory is, will be what illuminates all of us. There will not need to be a sun. There will be no dark. There will be no sun because it will be his glory that will illuminate and overtake all of us. So that's the first thing. This was happening just as was told by the prophets. Number two, we know that as well, Jesus himself, while he was living on the earth, repeatedly, emphatically, clearly said that he would die by crucifixion, that he would be buried, and then on the third day he would rise again. He talked about how the Son of Man must be lifted up, and that's how they would do the crucifixion. They would lift them up. This was a repeated claim of Jesus throughout his ministry, and the disciples were confused by it, but then later when it happened, they realized, my goodness, he did talk about this. And even the angels that appeared to the women there at the tomb, don't you remember him talking about this when he was in Galilee? He talked about it all the time. So Jesus repeatedly talked about this. Number three, we know that as well, Jesus did in fact die. He died. So when you celebrate Good Friday, when you, it's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a memorial really, Good Friday is, that's what you're remembering, that he did die. And not only did he die, he went through the most horrendous treatment before he got to the cross even. And when he got to the cross, that was a horrendous treatment as well. In fact, there was a word that was invented, a word that was created. It's the word that we get in our English language, excruciating. You know where that word originates? It literally means from the cross excruciating literally means from the cross when you trace that word back it is to explain the horror of crucifixion so crucifixion as a capital punishment was perfected by the Romans in the days of Jesus. And it was literally, it was reserved for those who had committed the heinous worst crimes. They were guilty of the worst crimes in the Roman world. And it was not generally practiced on among those who were of Jewish descent. And so this was a really scandalous thing that took place in through the trials of Jesus. Jesus was subjected to a number of trials. There were actually illegal trials where there were false witnesses who actually did not agree on the case or the facts or anything about the punishment. Nonetheless, they sentenced him to death under the cover of darkness and night, basically just to shut up the mob. There was, there was a growing mob and just sort of appease everyone. This was not a trial. This was a murder. But the Bible says they took, him, took, they took him before he was sent to the cross and they had him flogged. Pilate, on an effort to try to get him off on something less than crucifixion, had permitted him to be scourged or flogged. And this is something where, uh, and I don't want, I don't intend to be, I mean, this, I should have probably given a little bit of a, of a, of a disclaimer before this message um, because it, I, don't, I don't want to be 
gross and I don't want to be graphic, but it's, it, it is the story of our Savior. A flogging is where he would actually have his hands tied up above him like this, and they would, they would, they would sort of lay his chest. They would, and this, was, this was, wasn't just Jesus. It happened to many people. Many men had to be punished this way. They would lay his chest on a, on a stump or a piece of, you know, piece of wood to brace him for the blows that were about to come so that there would be less resistance there. And so an executioner, perhaps even two executioners, would hold in their hand what they would call a cat of nine tails. And a cat of nine tails was a wooden handle about a cubit long, so about as long as, as the, your, from your elbow to the tips of your fingers. And, and at the end of, of that mallet, there would be lengthy straps of leather. And at the end of each one of those strips of leather, there would be sharp pieces of rock or stone or metal. And, and they would have been used to basically tenderize the flesh of a human being. That's, that's how it would be used. And at the end of some of those strips of leather, there would be like metal, there'd be hooks that were made out of metal or bone, and they would have sunk into a man's flesh as the executioners would slam it down and then give it a tug to ensure that the man's exposed neck and his back and his buttocks and his legs, just wherever they would, wherever they, once you started, once the back started to get it too ripped up, they'd go down to the legs as well. And uh, some of the historians in that day, Josephus actually says that, that, that one one blow with that and a, and a tug with the hooks could actually rip, rip the flesh and rip a, a rib right out of a man's body. It was not uncommon for that to happen. And so it would go down to that deep tissue. This is why the book of Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, some 700 years beforehand, the prophecies, Isaiah says this, that his form was marred beyond human likeness. That's why that's prophesied. Because you wouldn't have even recognized Jesus in that horrid state. He was a young, healthy man, but you wouldn't have recognized him on that day. He was then given a cross to bear. The Bible tells us that, that and so it, was the, it would have been the cross bar, the beam that, would have, that his hands would have gone out to because they would already had the, the pole in the ground out there. So they would make him carry the cross bar and he would have to carry it out to his place of execution. He was most likely, before handing that cross, he was beaten and so beaten and so tired and so bloody and so traumatized that that cross was weighing on his shoulders over 100 pounds. They said that that, that cross beam would be over 100 pounds or so made of recycled timber that had, you know, would have had the tears and the sweat and the blood of other people who had been crucified. And he fell. We know that he fell. And, and when he fell, historians talk about the kind of weight that would have come down and, and, and on his back and it probably would have crushed, it could have easily crushed his chest cavity, giving him a deep heart contusion. So at this point in time, that day that we call Good Friday, you're now seeing a body of a man working really, really hard to try to pump blood out from his heart to his extremities and losing blood at a rapid pace as well. He's in shock, he's dehydrated, he's in incredible trauma, and his heart now is very likely traumatized from that fall. Medical examiners have actually said that they've, they, they've studied cases like these and these events in the great detail, and they've said that the falling of Jesus on that crossbar could have been equivalent to, of a high-speed crash with no airbag to brace him. Right? And just like crashing into a steering wheel. So you would need to go to the hospital. Although Brett didn't go to the hospital. He was, he was good to go. You're going a good, what, 15 or so? High speed. High speed crash. Jesus didn't go to the hospital. He continued carrying that cross. He had assistance. So they made someone help him carry it out. 
And that's why he needed help. He could have carried it. But his body was already marred beyond recognition. And so he goes out to his place of crucifixion. And out there at the place of crucifixion, this carpenter would have had the equivalent of small railroad spikes driven through the most sensitive nerve centers of the body, the hands and the feet. And he was stripped. He was mocked. He had been uh, punched in the face while they blindfolded him. And they said, if you're really a prophet, tell us who hit you. They pulled his beard out. out of, and it's just so much disrespect. And in a measure of even greater disrespect, someone went and they wove together like a crown of thorns. And they jammed that down on his head. And they said they, they, they used that to mock him. They said, he says he's the king of the Jews. Well, here he is. The king of the Jews now has a crown. And so they put that crown on his head and they lifted him up on the cross and it said above his cross, King of the Jews. And at that point, he is near death. A lot of men would hang on the cross and, and stay there for days before they would die because they would die of asphyxiation. But Jesus died in a few, a few short hours. And they did something while he was on the cross that was actually really shameful. And I never realized this was a shameful thing until I got into this and started studying a little bit more. We read in our Bibles this, this occasion where they offer him a gesture. It looks like a kind gesture. And, and I was recently you know, watching some videos of some historical shows about archaeological digs in that time and in that region. And they explained this fact, which was absolutely fascinating. In that day, there were no public restrooms. So like if you travel, think about this. People are migrating. People are pilgrim making pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And there are people traveling along the roads for days. Now when you travel, you'll stop for, you know, to a gas station and there's a public restroom in a gas station. Or you'll stop at a rest area and there'll be some public toilets where you can actually go and do your business in private. I mean, well, they didn't have that. And they're traveling. And it's not like, well, people in the first century didn't need to use it, right? They had to use it too. If you got to go, you got to go, right? And so they're out traveling and, and, they, and they, they didn't have any place to go. So they would just go anywhere. They actually would dig a hole. Well, something was actually invented during this time, during the days when Jesus lived. And I hadn't realized this before. But if you lived in that day, you would come upon this area. But there no, again, there were no public restrooms or stalls. But what they would do is they, would, they made these marble-like slabs. And they would put them over top of an of, of, of a aqueduct of water that runs underneath. And so it basically would be open slabs with holes in them like toilets. And you would just, if you had to use it, you would go over there and use it. I mean, just out in the, in the, out in the open. It was, just, it was just a whole the way that they would do it. And so the person would then, you know, you wouldn't have any way, you know, the thing that wouldn't flush, there wouldn't be any toilet paper, anything like that. And so there would be a trough of water that was right directly close to that. And a person would do their business and they would clean themselves off in the trough of water. Well, what happened in that day was this. Some of the peasants in that day and some of the poor people and the homeless folks that lived in the, in the area saw this as a possible way to make some income. And so they would go and they would get one of the many sea sponges that were around the season that day. And they would take the sponge and they would put it on a really long stick so they could stand back. And they would slop water on that sponge and they would just wait for people to use the restroom. And they would offer to clean them so that they wouldn't have to do it themselves. Okay. The Bible tells us that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they offered him a what? Yeah, a sponge. It was that sponge. Right? Because as Jesus was hanging there, he said there were about seven things that he said. And one of the things he said once was, I thirst. And so I always thought that, well, the soldier goes over and he gives him a kind gesture of dipping that sponge in some vinegar. Well, where's that sponge from? That toilet. 
Yeah, it wasn't a kind gesture. So Jesus speaks words from the cross, and the words that he speaks from the cross are nothing but love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. John, look after my mother, Mary. And to that man that was crucified right next to him, hey, today you're going to be with me in paradise because of the faith that you just expressed. And so the Bible says that Jesus said these things from the cross. And then it says that he said in a loud, triumphant voice before he died, he shouted, it is finished. And in doing so, it was likely that he took his last breath shortly after that and died. Now, generally speaking, as I mentioned, that people die on the cross, on crosses from asphyxiation because their bodies would slouch as they're hanging like this. Their bodies would slouch so much that they couldn't fill their lungs up with air and so they would suffocate. And we don't know this for sure. We don't know this for sure about Jesus. There's no way to verify this because he's alive. But it's possible that since he was able to proclaim those words it is finished with great boldness and actually meaning what I'm saying is he could get his breath. He, he actually possibly did not die from suffocation since that, since he was able to say it is finished. It's possible that maybe what he died from some historians think is that when he fell and that cross crushed him, that it's very likely that he had a deep heart contusion from the crossbar that crushed his, crushed his chest cavity and as the body was working on the cross, laboring to pump blood to all his extremities where he had been opened up and he was bleeding profusely, that he ultimately and literally died figuratively and literally of a broken heart. The Bible says that Jesus breathed his last breath after he said the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that, in that moment, was the atoning for the sin of the world. That moment did it. No longer, no longer would people have to live in their sin and sacrifice an animal every year to receive forgiveness. That sacrifice, the book of Hebrews says, was once for all. For all. And so, yeah, he died. And to ensure his death, we're told another executioner came over and took a spear and ran it right up underneath Jesus's ribcage into his heart so that water and blood rushed out. And so that actually kind of shows that his heart was probably had, it had considerable amount of blood in the heart cavity. And with a chest contusion, he very likely died of a heart attack. And it was insured when they punctured his heart. So that was number three. Jesus did indeed die. Number four, what was it say? He was, they, they brought him down. Joseph, there, uh, Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body, so they brought him down. He was wrapped in upwards of 100 pounds of burial linens and spices. He was wrapped in about 100 pounds of burial linens and spices. This is a serious ordeal because they're in tombs and they would stink really bad if you didn't do this. Number five. He was buried in a rich man's tomb, just as the prophecy said he would be. It was a cold, dark, carved out of rock type of cave, no food, no water. I'm saying this for a reason. There's nothing in there that could have helped Jesus live. No medical attention, nothing. There are people, there are, there are groups of people in the world who say that he merely swooned on the cross. Have you heard that word swooned? Which means that he didn't actually die, like he kind of passed out and then 
his heart was punctured with a spear, and then he just stayed passed out. And the, and he and while he was in the tomb, he, he kind of revived himself. That's actually what many of the Muslims say about Jesus, and they couldn't be more wrong. This this man, after that amount of punishment to his body, died. He died. Well, then we find three days later, number six, this is the sixth thing of the events that took place. He was alive. He was alive. <laughs> On the third day. So Friday, they consider that, you know, they turn that. So Friday evening goes past midnight, one day, Saturday's two days, Sunday morning, third day, he's alive. And he appeared after he was alive to upwards of 500 people, it says. He appeared to enemies. He appeared to friends. He appeared to family. He appeared to strangers. He appeared over the course of 40 days in multiple locations. People hugged him. People ate with him. Breakfast, dinner, people had conversations with him. He was very much alive and hundreds of people saw him and wrote about it before he ascended to heaven. And this is the fact that is the bedrock of the Christian faith. At the center of Christianity is not a place that we go to, not a wailing wall, not a temple, not a mosque, not a holy mountain, not a holy place. I mean, we call holy land. It's not the holy, it's the Bible lands. That's not a holy place. Our faith is not, a, is not pointing to that place. It's not a, uh, you know, it's not a dome or, a, or some rock or anything. At the center of our faith is a man who walked away. Himself moving a rock into his own triumphant victory over death. Without the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity does not exist. Without the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity does not exist. If you ever meet a person who says they're a Christian, but they do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they are not a Christian. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We are created, God created us to live forever. Sin creates a huge problem for us. We die. And so there has to be a way for us to be able to live forever. And that is where resurrection comes in. Jesus raises so that we could raise as well even though we die. Jesus was dead. We are dead spiritually. We die physically. And we'll do nothing if Jesus stays dead. If Jesus was dead and stayed dead, did not, did not rise, then we will do nothing after we die except gnaw on the stench of death forever. That's all we do. But if Jesus is alive, we're alive. And if Jesus rose from death, we'll rise from death. He is our first fruits, the scripture says, which means he goes before us. And so everything comes down to this fact. Everything comes down. Everything about your eternal future comes down to this fact. You see, Christianity isn't built on a philosophical system. It's, it's built on historical fact. That's, it's not based on anything like, it's not based on a place. It's based on a person. It's not based on an ideology. It's based on an event, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to sort of explain that a little bit, if, we, if you don't mind. Like, like when I say explain, I mean like what resurrection is and what it is not. Because this is central to us. What is resurrection anyway? Well, number one, here's what it's not. It's not revivification. 
And, what, and revivification is like if someone dies and they come back to life, and then, they, and then they, of course, will die again. And that has happened. It happened. I mean, it happened to Lazarus. Lazarus died. Jesus went to visit Lazarus, Lazarus, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And when Jesus shouted that, Lazarus came out of his grave. The King James Bible says something really funny. It says, he stinketh. And, and he did. He was very dead. He, he was dead for a few days. And then four days, in fact. And then he was raised because Jesus raised him. And then he died again. That's not what happened to Jesus. It wasn't revivification. So there are stories that maybe some of you have heard of people who are like, you know, pronounced dead. And then they came, they came back to life. That's some, that revivification sometimes can happen. It's not what Jesus did. Number two, it's not reincarnation. There's a belief that says that, that you, know, you die and then your soul kind of migrates into another state of being and through this endless cycle of karmic progress or regress, depending on how you behave, until at one point you, know, you become nothing and one with the divine, right? That's what, and that's reincarnation. That's not what happened to Jesus. It's not what happens to anyone. I'll just give you a little clue. Number three, it's not annihilation. This is, this is unfortunately the belief of a lot of people out there where you basically you die and cease to exist. There's no purpose for beyond this life, which is really difficult, I think, to believe in when you go back and you think about, well, how were we made? Like, what, like how, how did, where did all of this start? And like, does it just end? Is it just, is it just over? Well, there are people who actually just don't want to think beyond this life. And it's like, well, this is all it is. It's annihilation. That didn't happen. And on the other side of that, it's not universalism. And this is a popular, this is a popular wave of Christianity, of sects of, sects of Christianity today, um, where people are kind of embracing this. And it's, it's, really, it's really dangerous. Don't embrace this. this. This is a belief that everyone dies and goes to be with God. Well, Jesus died, and then Jesus went to to a place to pronounce victory, uh, and then he led with him, the Bible says, the captives who belong to God. Ephesians says, Paul says in Ephesians, that the children of God who were by faith awaiting the resurrection of the Son of God. There were a lot of people, followers of God, who were faithful even before the resurrection of Christ. Jesus died and went and gathered them to take them to paradise. But the, the resurrection does not mean that everyone just, hey, everyone, everyone's in. Christ died. We die. Everyone, get, everyone goes. That's not the way it is. You, Christ died. If you're in Christ, you die in Christ. We rise in Christ just as Christ rose. If you're not in Christ, there is no resurrection to eternal life. There is only resurrection to eternal death. You're created to live forever, and you will live forever, either in life or in death. And that's, that's just, that's, that's, that is the way God created us. Daniel says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, that in that day, in the day of our resurrection, all the multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will arise, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting shame and contempt. So... I say shame on any teacher who calls himself a Christian teacher of the scriptures who would say that once you die, all of us go to a better place. All go to be with God. Every person on the earth, that all of us live happily ever after. That's a very dangerous assumption because the scripture is very clear that it's only those who are in Christ. So also resurrection, it literally means life after life. Life after life after death. That's, that, it's like life after life, life after death. That's resurrection. So you die. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
So your body is dead, but you're alive with Christ. The soul, the spirit, the immaterial aspect of our being goes to be with the Father. Our body goes into the grave. And then one day, Jesus says, at the appointed time, that appointed day that we all yearn for, that day of resurrection, the soul will rejoin the body and will rise in a new, glorified, perfected, completely saved state to be with Jesus forever. And I know this is difficult to think about. It sounds like a fairy tale. But look, this is, this is, there's, there is life other than what you know here on this earth. There is. God created you for this, for eternity. And so I, I guess I'd like to explain why we believe in the resurrection of Jesus and why we don't believe that this is a borrowed ideology from other religions or other pagan practices. Because this is where, this is where Christianity, I think, gets, gets um, Questioned in a lot of ways because people will say, well, this idea of resurrection is a borrowed idea from pagan religions and practices. And some of you probably have heard this in college, to be honest, that the whole concept of Jesus' resurrection was actually borrowed from pagan mythology. Have you heard that? Anybody heard that? It's not true. There's zero evidence for that. Zero. It's, it's unsubstantiated fallacy. It's myth. It's folly. And I'm going to give you a few reasons for it. All right. I'm going to start with a quote from N.T. Wright. He's a bishop in the Anglican Church, wrote one of the most amazing modern-day books on the resurrection of Jesus. And he says this, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of one man, was known to be false. Many people believed that the dead were non-existent. So annihilationism, annihilationism. So basically in that day, many people believed that when you died, that's it. You cease to exist. Like I said, many people today believe that. So outside of Judaism, which believed in a resurrection collectively of the entire nation of Israel from the, that book of Daniel verse that I quoted earlier. So the only people in the history of the world until the coming of Jesus who even believed in any kind of resurrection were those who were already reading the Old Testament and by faith awaiting the coming of the Messiah that would be Jesus although they didn't many of the Jews didn't see Jesus as the Messiah and so they're still waiting for the Messiah but the problem is they're looking for the Messiah for the purpose of a resurrection taking place of all of the nation of Israel all those who have gone and together collectively there's a resurrection and that's kind of the way that they've read that they misunderstood it the Greeks had no concept of a physical resurrection because they were what we would consider to be platonic dualists the Greek, the Greek philosophy, the Greek philosophers, which means that they saw like people as matter, like meat, flesh, body, and then also soul, spirit or soul. So you had the material and the immaterial aspects of our being, and those were two very separate things. And so the world of forms, the per which was the perfect world of their spirituality, is where you would kind of long to be, where you would leave your physical body and all of its constraints and restraints. And that was the great goal of Greek mythology. And so the last thing they wanted was a resurrected body. They don't want that body to come up again because they want to be, they, they want to get out of the body. They want you to die and leave the body to go to be with the perfect world of spirituality. So the whole goal for them is to discard that body, to discard like the, the husk of this body and go. So we didn't borrow it from the Greeks. We didn't borrow it from them because they didn't even have an ideology about a physical resurrection. 
So how about this one? Some people say that we borrowed the idea from ancient mystery religions. So there are all kinds of ancient mystery religions. There were certain pagan religions. You've probably heard of many of them. Maybe you've studied some of them. And they would say, well, this particular god or goddess had an ideology and a mythology that there would be a resurrection. And they would talk about these different gods or goddesses that maybe mention something about a resurrection. Well, two things I'll say to that. First, no one ever actually believed that these gods or goddesses walked the earth physically in flesh like they they never no one believed that they actually called it mythology themselves which means these are the equivalent of superheroes they're just made up in their minds they're invented myths and so that's one thing but secondly this there's not a shred of historical evidence that any of the mystery religions that any of the small pagan cults or ideologies had any concept of a physical resurrection until around the second century a.d so if you go back and you start seeing some of the pagan religions talking about resurrection, yeah, you might see it, but it's going to be after Jesus resurrected. So what's that mean? They borrowed it from us. We didn't get it from them. They took it from us. So that's, that's that. But I, I, I'll give you one more. Additionally, the Jews. So the Jews did have an idea, a concept of resurrection. But like I said, it was not of an individual person rising in the middle of history. Their whole ideology was that the nation, and they built this ideology sort of falsely that the nation would rise together on the last day at the coming of the Messiah. They had no concept. There's no record anywhere among any Jewish scholar or rabbi or teacher or anyone that there would be a man in the middle of history that would rise. They all taught that the nation would rise together. From that verse that I mentioned, Daniel 12, 2, the multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will arise. So it's the nation, it's the multitudes, it's the collectives. That's, that was their ideology. That was their concept of resurrection. So they didn't talk about an individual man either. And so what's the point of that? Well, the point is this. Why did Jesus resurrect? How does it fit with the scripture? If they missed it and they're misinterpreting the scripture, well, how does Jesus' resurrection fit with the scripture? Well, here's, here's, the, here's the point. Jesus is Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of all Israel. The temple is Jesus. How did Jesus talk about the temple? Tear this temple in. He's talking about his body. And in three days, I'll build it up again. He is the presence of God on earth. That is who Jesus is. The priest who mediates and intercedes for us. That's Jesus. He is our great high priest. The prophets who call us to repentance all throughout the Old Testament. Guess who Jesus is? He is the great prophet who calls us to repentance. The shepherds who announced the coming of Jesus. They're all to remind us what? That Jesus is the good shepherd. What am I saying? Everything in the Old Testament, everything is pointing to Jesus. It was all about Jesus and the Jewish people missed him. The majority of them missed him. Everything in the scripture is a sign and a foreshadowing and symbolism of the coming of Jesus, the living of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the rising of death from Jesus, of Jesus. It's showing that he is the hope of Israel. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament theology, uh, prophecy. He is the one in whom our faith is to rest. And so it was a signpost for the nation of Israel. It was a signpost for all nations, all of us, all nations of the earth, that God is vindicated, that scripture says elsewhere, that this man Jesus, through his resurrection and death, God is vindicated. Jesus is the one it's pointing to. The one thing that no one has ever been able to do is conquer our enemy of death and sin. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that's our greatest enemy. We can't beat death. And Jesus did. In Christ, we will as well.
And so any argument that the resurrection was a borrowed idea, that we borrowed it, that the, resu- that, that the resurrection of one man is a borrowed idea, it's, it's a false argument. It was a revolutionary idea. The Christians, you know, they didn't just make this up. This, was, this happened. No one considered or debated or wrote about this until it happened. And then it happened. And there's a lot of circumstantial evidences for why you can say, well, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And I, and I just, I'll give you a few of these, all right? I, and the reason I'm giving you these is because, and I know that, you know, it's, it's Easter. I know you've got dinner plans and things like that. But I really want to give you these few handful of circumstantial things, substantial things, because I really want you deep down in the recesses of your heart to believe this. Down in your gut, all right? This isn't just, this isn't just, uh, like, some kind of study that we're doing. This isn't some kind of archeological dig, like I mentioned. This isn't something interesting. This is everything. This is everything. This, this is everything. The resurrection of Jesus is everything. And I want you to believe it with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. and all of your days, I want you to serve this cause with all of your might. So I give you some reasons. And if you're not a Christian, now would be a really good time to tune in. If you're still interested, it would be a really good time today to give your life to Jesus. And I'll give you some circumstantial reasons for why it's a good idea. And the first thing we'll start with is this idea of cause and effect. All right? There's always a cause. Anything that happens has a cause. Okay? And as we look at the changes that come into the world after the resurrection of Jesus, the burden of proof is on those who would say that he's still dead, in my opinion. Those who claim that Jesus is still dead have a burden to prove that. How can, I'm like, how can we explain? Otherwise, how do you explain all of the changes that I'm about to share with you here momentarily, apart from the resurrection of Jesus causing these changes? I would say the burden of proof rests on those critics, not on the believers. So number one, number one, here's one. This will be my last list, okay? Kaylee last week said, Dad, you got like all kinds of lists. You say, oh, we're about to close with this list. And you have another list, right? This is my last list, Kaylee. I called you out, didn't I? We read in Luke's account that who were the first people to go to the tomb? Women, all right? Now, not a big deal today. It was a big deal then, especially if you're trying to prove something. If you want to argue something and you want to say, hey, this is true, you would never say that the first people that saw Jesus were women. If the resurrection of Jesus were a fabricated tale and it was told, the way it was told in, in more than one gospel was that women went to the empty tomb of Jesus first, then you can rest assured that it is in fact historically accurate and true. It is not a myth. It is not a lie. It is not fraudulently conceived. And why do I say that? You're like, well, you're being awfully misogynistic. Why are you saying that? Well, here's the reason. Because in that day, women couldn't even testify in court. So if you're going to make up a story (laughs) about a resurrected man, then you would at least want the men to be the liars, right? Because at least the men could go to court and testify. The women couldn't even go to court, right? So this, this, this does a few things. Listen, this does a few things. One, it shows Jesus' love for women. And it shows women's love for Jesus. And it also shows us that the Bible is not a lie because a lie wouldn't be told like that. They would not begin a lie in that way. Second thing, before Jesus' resurrection, the disciples 
Were they bold and strong and courageous? <laughs> they were cowards. If you go back and you read the account before the crucifixion, we find them cowering and running and being afraid. The only one who went was Jesus' best friend, which was John. But then even after he died, while he's in the grave, before, they, before he appeared to them, we see them in the book of Acts. In the very beginning of Acts, there's like 120 followers left. Remember, there were thousands of people that followed Jesus. About 120 followers left, plus the, the, the 11 disciples there. Judas had already hung, hanged himself. And they're terrified. They're hiding. And Jesus seemingly comes in and he walks right, right to them. Boom, just appears right to them, walks through the wall. He's, in, he's resurrected alive in his fully glorified book of Revelation body. And all of a sudden, after seeing Jesus alive, what happens to these men and women? I mean, it's like a switch is flipped. All, I mean, previously we see men like Peter who had been total cowards. I mean, Jesus is going to be crucified and a young woman, a little girl comes up to Peter and says, hey, I've seen you with Jesus. And he's like, no, I've never met him, right? I don't know him. He even cursed at one point. He's like, I have no idea who that guy is. He's scared to death. And yet after the resurrection, Peter ends up himself getting crucified. How? Not even the same way Jesus. How does it say in, in the Fox's Book of Martyrs how Peter was crucified? Talked about upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to die in the same way as Jesus. How do you go from being a coward to being crucified upside down? I'll tell you how. The resurrection happened. He saw Jesus. And Peter's idea was, you know what? I can die this way because I know what's going to happen. He lived and therefore I will live. And so I'll see you all in a little bit. I'll be back. Go ahead. Kill me. I don't care. What are you going to do? Kill this body? You're just going to send me to Jesus. So I'll just hang out with Jesus until I get that new body. That's the way Peter looked at it. Why do Christians in that time start preaching and teaching even through great suffering? Why do they serve wholeheartedly under the reign of horrible emperors that came along to want to kill them all? They suffered under Nero. They didn't fear death under Nero. I mean, they were fine just being beaten and sent to lie, eaten by lions and set aflame by the torches of Nero. Why would they do that? Because they knew Jesus was alive. Death no longer was fearful. That's what happened. They no longer feared death. It was no longer final, and they knew it. Basically, all death does now is changes things. It changes everything. Number three, these followers remain loyal to Jesus. That's a huge point. I mean, if Jesus only died and he stayed dead, a few billion people today would not be worshiping him. They just wouldn't. Two other men were crucified beside Jesus. You know who they are? No. A lot of people have been crucified. What is it about Jesus' crucifixion? Well, it's the resurrection. We don't know these guys' names. We know Jesus. We know Jesus because he rose, and that makes him distinct and unique. People remain loyal to Jesus. I mean, we see it all the time with elections and politicians, don't we? There's a great upsurge. Like, there was a great upsurge people following Jesus. What happens during election seasons? Great upsurge people, you know, put bumper stickers on, put signs out. They, they are like, this, this, is, this person's the greatest person in the world. This is our Savior. This is our Messiah. That person loses the election. What happens? Well, take the bumper stickers off the truck, right? Take the signs down. Take the, you know, throw the t-shirts away. Put them in the, you know, Goodwill store or whatever. And we just kind of forgive up, forget about it, give up hope for change, right? We'll go find another Messiah somewhere else, another deliverer, another savior to, to save us, right? Well, Jesus died. 
you'd have thought that that would have, that, that popularity would have died down, right? Just like that, just like it always does. It does with everyone. I mean, even Gamaliel, a wise teacher, was telling people as the disciples and the, you know were were preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. A, a, a very wise man stood among them and said, "Let these guys talk. This happens all the time. Someone rises up and they they think that's going to be their deliverer and their savior, and when they, and they'll they'll talk about him. But then when they die and another generation comes along, that person's forgotten. That'll happen. But if it's from God, you won't be able to stop it." That's why it's never stopped, because it actually happened. Jesus died and people didn't give up hope. They didn't go follow someone else. They didn't follow another religion. They didn't pursue another path. They remained loyal to Jesus and they became fearless. They spread the word. They scattered. They preached. They healed. They taught. They cast out demons. They walked in resurrection power of Jesus by the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And they went from 100 to 3,000 in a day including thousands of people added to their number and it spread out to the Gentiles and then it spread out to other nations in the earth. And, and now, you know, how in the world do you account now for this 2,000 year long legacy of loyalty to a dead man? There is no account for it. He's alive. There is no explanation for the birth of Christianity apart from Jesus. If Jesus remains dead, then the disciples will scatter. The early followers will mourn him. They'll remember him. But then everything comes to an end. Nothing continues if he's still dead. More songs are sung about Jesus. More paintings are painted about Jesus. More books are written about Jesus than anyone who has ever lived in the history of the world. You go to the Library of Congress today. You plug in Jesus. 17,000 books will show up. If he's dead, none of that exists. Additionally, number four, worship changed. They stopped worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath. And these were people, and think about this, these were people who were devoutly devoted to their Sabbath. I mean, even to this day, devout Jews, at sundown on Friday, all the shops close. Everyone goes home. They don't do anything. No labor of any sort. They're extremely devoted to their Sabbath. And all of a sudden, these early Christians started worshiping, not on Saturday, as the Old Testament commanded, the Sabbath day that says in Exodus 20, on the sixth day, you know, God, God created the earth in six days. On the seventh day, the Sabbath day, he rested. You know, that was God's order for creation from Genesis 1 to, you know, all the way through to the, to the, you know, to the Exodus. And they started worshiping all of a sudden on Sunday, which was a work day for them. It would have been a work day, the first day of the week. Some ancient historians like Lucian of Samosota and Pliny the Younger have said that uh, they recorded that Christians would often gather at sunrise to worship on Sunday because it was a work day. So they, what they probably did was they would get up, worship Jesus, and then go to work. That was their day. They never did that before. They never did that. They, they had no, they, I mean, you would never worship on a non-Sabbath day. You would never change the Sabbath. But Christians changed the Sabbath. They said, well, the old era is gone. The new era has come. God has begun this new era through the Messiah, through, through Christ. God made the world. He made all the, you know, and he made the new world with Jesus. And so that's why we worship on Sunday, which we call the Lord's Day. John calls it in Revelation, the day of the resurrection of Jesus. How do we account for that? How do we account for singing to Jesus and praying to Jesus on, and worshiping Jesus on this day, this first day of the week? The resurrection. Devout Jews would consider that a violation of the first two commandments. First two commandments. There's one God. You worship him alone. There's no other explanation for the worship of Jesus on Sunday apart from the resurrection of Jesus. Number five. Jesus' family worshipped him as God. 
His own mother, Mary. Now, remember, his, Mary, his, his, his family, they were devout Jews. And we read that she took, she and Joseph took Jesus, his, Joseph's adopted father, they took Jesus to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord when he was young. Very devout people. They're peasants in Nazareth. They live in a town of about 50 to 100 people. Jesus is a carpenter. Or Joseph, Joseph is a carpenter. They're, they're, they, they, you know, this cost time and money for them to journey every, you know, every so often to Jerusalem. But they did. They were devout Jewish people. And after the resurrection, we see Mary numbered among the disciples in that upper room in Acts chapter 1. We see her there praying to her son as God. And we see later his brothers, James and Jude, uh, who they worship him as, as God as well. They, they become pastors and actually write books of the Bible. Well, before the resurrection, they thought their brother was a lunatic. They did. And following the resurrection, <laughs> we're like, okay, this is real. He went from lunatic to Lord, and they worshiped him as God. And I'll give you one more really quickly before we close. Seriously. <laughs> Number six. I'm going to give you three more. We got time for it. Jesus' enemies worshipped him as God. Saul, Saul of Tarsus, he hated Christians. And he uh, even murdered Christians. He was very well known for standing by and watching the murder of one of the early deacons in the church, Stephen, the stoning. And, and it says that Jesus comes down, appears to Saul on uh, the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus, it says, and, and all of a sudden he, be, he changes so much that his name changed and he becomes Paul. name is Paul. Paul becomes one of the great proclaimers of the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul dies without ever recanting that preaching and teaching. There's no way you can explain Paul transitioning from being, being a devout opponent, a a killer, a murderer of Christians to one of the most devout worshipers of Jesus that we've ever known. Number seven, as I said earlier, Christianity exploded. It exploded. Thousands of people, and now we have it. So this is number eight. This is the last one. And this is the most important thing. No body was ever produced. The first explanation by the Jewish authorities was what? That the body had been stolen. Well, the body's been stolen. Well, great. Where is it then? Where is it? I mean, a good reward would have been offered for that body, especially considering uh, what, he was, uh, what he was claiming about himself, that he would rise. I mean, so if, if you're looking, I mean, if you, if you wanted a body, it would be that one. And you're going to go after that one. You're going to find that body, right? So you're, you're, you're looking at a tomb and... Well, let's just consider the tomb as well. There's a large stone in front of that tomb, and there's a Roman soldier, there's a Roman seal placed on the tomb, on that, on that stone, and a soldier outside to guard that tomb. So, one, who got past the soldier to steal the body? Who rolled the stone away, and then who stole the body? Why is there no record of that body being taken? Where in the world did the body go? Where did the body go after it was stolen? I mean, even if the body was stolen, why is it alive? <laughs> right? Oh, they stole his body. Well, yeah, okay. Then he just started walking around eating fish and preaching, right? I mean, that's, you still have to explain the fact that the body was alive. Doesn't, I mean, just the saying that the body was stolen doesn't account for anything. And, and I think, you know, 
I, it, it, this is incredibly important, and I, you could probably actually call this number nine, so again, I lied. The tomb of Jesus was never enshrined by anyone. Like, if you go over there today to the, you know, what people call the Holy Lands, the Bible Lands, and like, you're, if you're walking around and you journey around and you ask a tour guide, like, hey, can you show me the empty tomb of Jesus? You know what they'll say? We can't. We don't know where it is. It probably looks like any number of these other tombs, but we don't know where his tomb is. We, I mean, it's, not, it's, it's never been that important. Why? Because he's not there. He's not there. I mean, you could walk through graveyards of tombs, and you'll see places of holy men and holy women and teachers and rabbis and leaders, and there'll be flowers and cards and candles and things like that. There'll be memorials and remembrances, and nothing like that was ever found at Jesus' tomb. Nothing. James Dunn, a New Testament scholar, says there is no evidence of any veneration at the tomb of Jesus. So unlike other tombs, the crowds of people never came out to flock to Jesus' tomb. They didn't come out and cry and light candles and write prayers. They didn't mourn and weep. He wasn't there. They didn't need to. I I'll read you this quote from William Lane Craig. He's a Christian apologist. He's a theologian. And he spent a considerable amount of time in his Ph.D. actually studying the resurrection of Jesus, examining all of the first and second century evidence and text, text regarding the resurrection of Jesus. And he wrote his dissertation on this, and this is what he said. He said it was customary in Judaism for the tomb of a prophet or a holy man to be preserved or venerated as a shrine. This was so because the bones of the prophet lay in the tomb and imparted to the site its religious values. If the remains were not there, then the grave would lose its significance as a shrine. Well, no one went to Jesus' tomb. No one visited his tomb. Why? Because no one is enshrined in it. No one. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Why would you go to visit Jesus' tomb? He's alive. He's, death is conquered. Sin is conquered. Satan is conquered. The wrath of God is lifted from us. Jesus is alive. There's no reason to go to the tomb. I mean, we, really, all we want is to see Jesus. That's it. We just want to see Jesus. And this is what separates Christianity from every other religion on the face of the earth. There are four major religions, and you see them all walking around today, some form of all of them. Three of those four are very distinct. Christianity is very unique. The four of those religions I'm referring to are the four re religions with a founder, right? Rather than a philosophy, meaning they, they follow a leader, not an ideology like Hinduism does. There's like a lot of people who've sort of, you know, a lot of spiritualists in today's world who sort of dabble in different kinds of Hinduism. But there's, there's most of the major religions have a founder, right? And you know what happens? Each of those religions have a sacred place where their founder is buried. And they'll make pilgrimages, and they'll go and they'll weep and they'll cry. So like if we were Muslim or we were Jewish, we would act very differently than we are here today. If we were Buddhist, we would be, also, we'd be really sad. Like I wouldn't be shouting with excitement here today. I would be mumbling very lowly, and we wouldn't be smiling and laughing and totally fired up and singing celebratory songs. We would be sad on this day. Because we'd be remembering the death of someone that we consider to be a great man who gave us teaching but no power. Who gave us hope, but no life. And so to this day, like Jews will follow Abraham. And they know that Abraham is buried in Hebron. And so the many of them will make a pilgrimage there every year to remember their dead leader, Abraham. 
And the same with Buddhism. They know that Buddha is buried in India. And so his followers to this day will make a pilgrimage every year regularly. They'll mourn and they'll weep and they'll wish that Buddha was alive, but he's not. Jesus has already dealt with the Buddha. Those who follow Islam and its false teachings, they know that Muhammad is buried in Medina. And they'll go to his burial site every year and they'll wail and they'll mourn and they'll weep and they'll remember him and they'll wish that he's alive, but he's not. He's dead. Well, do you know who's in Abraham's tomb? Abraham. You know who's in Buddha's tomb? Buddha. You know who's in Muhammad's tomb? You know the answer by now. Muhammad. Well, you know who's in Jesus' tomb? Nobody. Nobody is in Jesus' tomb. Nobody is in Jesus' tomb. Right? So listen, we're not Jews. We're not Muslims. We're not Buddhists. We're Christians, which means we follow a man who is alive. And his name is Jesus. He is God become man to live the new life that we have not been able to live, to die the death that we should have died, to give the gift that we cannot earn. He is Lord. He is God. He is Savior. He is King. He is Christ. He's living right now. He's ruling. He's reigning from the throne right now. He's preparing a place in eternity for us right now. And he's willing to forgive every sinner who would just call upon his name and say, I need to put my faith in you, the resurrected power of Jesus. I know that I will see you again face to face if I just do that. So until that day, just remain in him and abide in him. Let's pray. We'll take communion. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to preach the Bible. And I thank you, Lord, that I get to teach the Bible. I don't have to get up and talk about the philosophy of Buddha or the rules of Muhammad or the death of Abraham. I actually get to get up and talk about the resurrection of Jesus and his death and his burial and what that means for us and his resurrection in our place, his death in our place for our sins as he is our savior. And until we see him face to face, we live for that and sing about that. And we share that good news with everyone that we come across today. Father, I pray that that knowledge of the resurrection would give us, the knowledge of that fact would give us the kind of courage, the kind of passion, the kind of compassion and boldness that it gave the early Christians, our early brothers and sisters. I mean, what is death when you know Jesus is alive? So may we live every day of our lives in light of that fact, in light of the facts of Easter. In Jesus' name, amen.